Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Trouble with Sex. This is Dr. Tammy, and I'm so excited to all my sexy listeners today. We have an amazing guest, my friend and colleague who I have so much respect for. She's so intelligent. She has a lot to say about our topic today, Dr. Wendy Walsh. She has a PhD in clinical psychology and evolutionary psychology, which we're going to talk a lot about today when we talk about sex and relationships. She also talks about attachment theory, and she is the host of the very popular podcast, Mating Matters. You've heard me say many times that pleasure is power, and our partners at Dame make products that are all about your pleasure. Making the world a happier place, one vagina at a time, Dame makes toys for sex that take solo and couple play to new heights. Check out dameproducts.com slash troublewithsex and get turned on by their innovative designs and modern engineering. For 15% off all your orders, use promo code Dr. Tammy, that's D-R-T-A-M-M-Y, at checkout. Again, that's dameproducts.com slash troublewithsex, promo code Dr. Tammy, and discover your favorite pleasure toy. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you so much for being here today, Thank live you. in L.A. That's a nice introduction. I, I was waving my hand like, keep it a coming, keep it coming. I'm liking this. <laughs> I really do so appreciate you. You have this really fascinating way of talking about sex and relationships from this evolutionary anthropological space that explains so much. You know, before we went <laughs> went on right now, you were talking about like the trouble with testosterone and and why people have the certain amount of eggs that they have. And I was like, wait, wait, I want this on. This is so interesting. And so, first of all, I just want to know how you got into this whole field of evolutionary psychology and what you think from that perspective is the trouble with sex today and what would you tell our listeners? Okay. Well, that's a lot to unpack. So I got into it like every woman gets into this field of science. I had a lot of bad dates (laughs) and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, right? Mm. And I was spending my time analyzing men. And it was only when I said, you know, I need to put an intellectual mind onto the science of love and I need to read everything possible. And I learned that love has biological pieces, sociological pieces, and psychological pieces. And when I took that micro lens of my own life and just zoomed out, like way out, looking at our culture in general, looking at our historical roots of our ideas about love and sex, I suddenly went, oh, none of it's my fault. It's not me. I'm part of a system. (laughs) I get it now. (laughs) It's not me. So wait a minute. You had a bunch of bad dates and you said, wait, I think I'm going to get a PhD and figure this out. Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That makes total sense. The second question is, what do I think is the trouble with sex today? And I think we are witnessing the most amazing growth period for human evolution in that we are breaking out of our society's constraints on what is normal, what is abnormal. Absolutely. We know as anthropologists that human beings have the widest range of sexual behavior of any primate species. And yet society has put people in these little boxes. Now, one of the big arguments for keeping people in these monogamous boxes, the box that looks like this, a house in the suburbs, two heterosexual people who are biologically related to the offspring, 
offspring in that household, right? That was only invented in our recent history, right? Mm -hmm. This is not how we roamed the savanna for hundreds of thousands of years, moving encampments of mostly related people, aunties, sisters, cousins, uncles, brothers, and the odd yummy-smelling hunter who came in from another tribe (laughs) (laughs) that made us sit up and take notice. Uh, We were cooperative breeders. Um, Babies were passed around to lots of people. And so, you know, now we're getting to a place where people can go, who am I? And who am I separate from my culture? And who am I who wants to conform and fit in with my culture? Because, of course, we have to respect these social organizations, right? Not everybody can be a wild, free spirit sexually because they will be banished from their particular yeah, tribe. Not, not everyone can be the hunter. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so the real trouble today is that because we have so many options, we don't have to fit into those boxes anymore, those roles, or the roles don't really work anymore. So the trouble is the confusion, mm-hmm. figuring out where they work. But you mentioned something else. We have so many options. Now, remember, in our hunter-gatherer past, during our entire lifespan, we probably laid eyes on about 150 humans total. In our own tribe. And other tri- neighboring tribes that we would meet. Mm-hmm. In our lifespan, we mm-hmm. never met more than 150 humans, mm-hmm. and plenty of them were related to us. Mm-hmm. Today, there could be thousands of new mates one thumb swipe away. And so we also suffer from something called paradox of choice. Mm-hmm. The more choice the human brain is given, the less likely they are to make a choice and the less they value that choice. Right. That's the grocery store dilemma or the yes. swiping left dilemma. Exactly. If you're on too Tinder, there's just too many choices. So you can choose in two seconds. Like, there's got to be something better to come along. So you just swipe left. Yeah, they keep going. Mm-hmm. And and they get what one of my episodes of Mating Matters is called Dating Apathy, where I interview a neuroscientist from the Kinsey Institute who talks about this. And he says they get enough satisfaction from the texting that they never actually go out on dates. They get dating apathy. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if I'd get enough satisfaction just from texting, but it certainly makes the decision to meet someone a lot more complicated. Yes, and to stick with that person. Mm. When you think just because you have a bad day that there's a better choice out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you can trade them in for someone else. Yeah, because, you know, love is an action verb. It's an action word. It's a verb. And the verb is to give. And loving someone is an intellectual commitment. It starts with lust and those hormones, and that all feels like it's a feeling. But after those die down, it's a decision. And some days are a much harder decision than others. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So the trouble really is, like, how do you manage all those choices when there's so many more people coming across your path, you're exposed, you have the internet. I mean, the choices are just, you know, unending. In the same way you look at your Netflix feed and get overwhelmed, the same thing can happen or, or go to a buffet in Las Vegas and try to choose one entree, right? The same thing can happen with our dating lives. So it's about you and self-regulating. For instance, if I tell people, I tell people all the time, if they use the apps, when they match with, say, two or three people, to just only focus on those two or three people and meet in the real world very quickly. Mm. And when you meet someone that you've had a coffee with and then maybe a dinner, and there's kind of some interest there, not asking for definition, not asking, will you be my boyfriend, but 
it's okay in these times to say, hey, I think you're kind of interesting. I'm not sure if you're for me. You might be for a friend or whatever, but you're an interesting human being. Could I ask that the two of us go off the app for a few weeks and just get to know each other? Mm. That helps narrow the field and helps your brain focus and really decide. But if you've got 10 more people in your box, I mean, I've seen a couple out on a date. She goes to the bathroom and he's continuing to swipe. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's comforting. Yeah. Especially when she comes back and finds him doing that. That's the paradox of choice right Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So what is your advice aside from just date a couple people, focus your energy? What about for once you're having sex, once you have a partner or several partners and you're involved sexually, what do you advise people? Well, you're not going to like this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's any such thing as no-strings-attached sex. Mm. Our bodies communicate so much through touch and the hormonal explosion and the intimacy that comes with pillow talk. There is no such thing as sex that is just sex. Mm -hmm. So my advice is, you know, don't ignore the parallel universe going on in your relationship the emotional ties that are growing. Um, Be aware of what's happening. Because when these things are suppressed, these feelings, they can often come out as crazy behavior at other times in your life, completely out of your awareness. Uh, One of the feelings that we often suppress that can be very dangerous is the feeling of jealousy. And sexual jealousy Mm -hmm. is something that evolved in all of us to make sure that we keep a partner near helping to take care of those offspring. So to say, I don't feel any sexual jealousy means You don't value your partner, you don't love your partner, or you're suppressing something that's very natural. So tell me how that applies to people who are in like open relationships or polyamory who say, well, I'm not necessarily jealous or I have compersion, which means I'm happy for them that they're with other people. Because this is like such a controversial thing that people disagree about. I bet it's men that say that, right? (laughs) No, not necessarily. There's women too, but it's like across the board conversation. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that if you're in an open relationship, you don't have any jealousy. But it's something that people try to overcome in themselves as if it's a negative thing, whereas other people find it um, a connecting, attaching emotion. Well, I do have an episode of Mating Matters called Polly Wanna Cracker about uh, polyamory. And I talked to a lot of couples and I talked to an evolutionary biologist who wrote two textbooks on polyamory. And he talks about this evolved sexual jealousy. And he said the problem in evolution is that Polyamory is good for us, but it's not good for our partner. In other words, we want to spread our seed, but we don't want our partner out there spreading seeds, right? And so it actually, if, if you're talking about reproductive fitness, which, you know, we're put on the planet for one reason, it is to reproduce. So even if you say, but I'm not having sex to reproduce, I want to remind you that the ingrained grained psychosexual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are still designed for you to reproduce, even though you've got a condom on, okay? So 
so you're still behaving like one of our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And so monogamy was actually designed mostly by men to stay close to women who had concealed fertility, only three days in the month where they're fertile. And unless he stayed close to her butt while she was roaming with her sister's aunties and cousins, he couldn't be sure that his baby was his baby, right? So while it was invented for men, it also was very, created a lot of reproductive fitness for us because human babies are born more premature because of our big brains than any animal in the kingdom. Wait, wait. Being born premature because we have big brains? How is that connected? Big-headed babies. So what happened is the trade-off for bipedal motion, upright walking, was that we had to have narrow hips. Narrow hips didn't allow big-head babies. Pregnancies might have been two years long when we were on our our hands and feet. God forbid. And so as a result, those women who had babies too big, they died in childbirth. And the women who survived are the ones who gave birth to premature babies. Most animals are up and running with the pack within hours of birth. We have a separate in-arms phase or in-stroller phase where we must be highly protected. And we don't allow our children to run with the pack until age five. And that's pretty uniform around the world, right? We let them go to kindergarten classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what we needed was two people holding, two people provisioning, getting a protein, two people protecting. So monogamy worked pretty good for this to take care of this external pregnancy as I call it. You know, there's this research out of this economist in London where he looked at, because male mating strategy involves one of two things, right? Either seed spreading, having as many baby mamas out there as possible and hoping that some of them will be a good single mother and your genes will be shot into the future through one of them. Or investing in one woman, her eggs, investing in the offspring that come out of that one woman. So those are the two male mating strategies available. And so this guy crunched some numbers and he said, okay, look, so one woman, if you invest in her, can actually only have a baby once a year. So you're going to get one baby a year from one woman. Now, if you are a seed spreader, you're not guaranteed that the woman you're with on any given night is actually ovulating. So in fact, 27 days out of the month, she's not ovulating. So what kind of playboy do you have to be? How many women do you have to entice to have sex with in order to produce one baby once a year like a monogamous man? Take a guess. How many how many one-night stands do you have to have? Different women. How many different 30? female partners? You're so good. Most people say like 10. It's 33. 33 women. Do you know how much work that is to obtain 33 new female partners if you're a guy? You better be high testosterone. You better have big balls. You better be an athlete. You better be rich, right? So for the average guy who's not all those things, investing in one woman is the way to go. And also, we don't know out of these 33 potential baby mamas, which ones won't succumb to our culture's pressures on single parents. We do know that single parents have the worst worst mental health, worst physical health. Their kids have more early onset of sexual behavior, drug and alcohol use, lower academic achievement. There's lots of data to show this, that our, our culture is not set up to support kids as a whole. Now, my But aunt- there's going to be more single mothers than married mothers, Soon. There already are. So let me say this. My don't confuse the science with me saying everyone must couple up and be monogamous. What we need are larger societal structures and supports for single parents. Oh, totally. We need housing, shared housing for single parents. Mm -hmm. We need childcare in every single workplace. 
because all our workplaces were designed for employees that have a wife at home. So do you think polyamory is developing as a way to create more of that, you know, village that's going to take care of all our children because there are more single mothers? That's a really interesting thought. I think sexual freedom is happening partly because of birth control protection and protection from sexually transmitted diseases. But I also think there's a feature and this is this just too many partners available. So there's a lot of sexual confusion. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a term I use and I call it junk food sex Mm -hmm. because our bodies are wired to crave these trace nutrients in our past, salt, sugar, and bad fats, right? And our fast food industry knows that, that our bodies are just going to have an insatiable craving for these kinds of foods. In the same way, our bodies way back when, where we were only exposed to, say, 150 humans over the course of a lifespan, when that non-genetically related hunter came in from the neighboring tribe, our pheromones, we smelt his pheromones, our, we went crazy, we sat up, we took notice, and we fought for him. Like, because he was unique and different? and Because our gene, he was different genes. Right, you can't have sex with your brother and have healthy kids, okay. right? So having a non sort of non genetically related mate is what you needed for reproduction. Mm-hmm. So we have also evolved to literally become activated, aroused, physically activated by genes that are different from ours, mm-hmm. specifically those that have different immune systems, right? Because mm-hmm. if you Mate with somebody you might take and and reproduce. You might take brown eyes from one, long legs from another, curly hair from another, except immune systems. Mm. Immune systems actually combine and make a stronger superhuman. So that's interesting in the light of what's currently happening. So I want to ask you more about that when we come back from our break. We'll be right back. The Trouble With Sex team and our partners at Dame want you to know we've got your back. We're living in really stressful times, and self-care has never been more important. Make sure you're carving out time to take care of you. This can mean self-pleasuring, masturbation. Those are great ways to decrease feelings of loneliness, anxiety, and it can even relieve depression. For more help exploring solo play, you can visit dameproducts.com slash troublewithsex. What is your very learned opinion about how this has happened and what has developed and also what you think about not just women's sexuality and the the structure of marriage and monogamy, but also around a gender and orientation and what's changed over the past 50 years for us? Biologically, sex has always been a much higher risk hobby for women than it is for men, <laughs> right? Uh, because of our unique biology we are more likely to contract an STD. Mm -hmm. Because during orgasm, women's bodies emit so much oxytocin, we're more likely to catch feelings and fall in love, right? And we might even catch an 18-year case of parenthood. (laughs) So as a result, women have always been a little more selective in their partners and in their mates. And if they haven't been, then they have suffered considerably if based on a bad decision, right? Choosing a mate who um, would hurt their children or hurt them or not be able to financially support them during times of patriarchy, right? Or abandon them, exactly. So I will say that women have always been selective, 
What's different now is that women are including in their selection process the ability for a man to give them sexual pleasure. Mm. It used to be as long as he was rich, because during patriarchy in the earlier days, it was harder for women to extract resources from the environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Men were hoarding resources from women as a way to control their sexuality. And so now women are going, okay, so I have my own paycheck. I could have kids with or without you. You need my eggs, dude. Make me feel good. Mm -hmm. Let's see. And I think women are not settling because they don't have to. They don't have to. What was your next question? Oh, gender. Yeah, gender and orientation. And orientation. Well, I need to say this, that homosexual behavior has only been an identity in about the last 100, 150 years. Prior to that, it was behavior. (laughs) In other words, you weren't considered a gay person, a straight person, a bi person. And in all the people I interviewed for my episode of Mating Matters called Survival of the Gayest, I found that the younger they were, the less they wanted to be put in those boxes. Oh, that's so true today. Yeah. Nobody wants to create that that However, having said that, identifying as a gay person helped enormously with the political movement, right? You could create some solidarity. It created a group that had an identity. We could change social policy so that uh, same-sex couples can marry and get the same benefits. So it was very important politically. And now I think we're seeing it more and more kind of uh, fall apart and get loose definitions when it comes to orientation. Well, I mean, a lot of people who are gay say they're gay. That's not going to change. But but there's a lot more gray area than I think there's ever been. I think there's a lot more ability to express the gray area when you're exactly, in it. So exactly. if we remember the Kinsey scale, right? A scale of one to six, six being completely homosexual in both behavior and fantasy. This is the thing that Kinsey learned because he did his work in the 40s and 50s, is that there were a lot of people living behaviorally heterosexual lives, but most of their fantasies were homosexual mm-hmm. because of the narrow boxes then that we had to put people into. And then... Uh, one being somebody who's completely heterosexual. And I might have got my sixes and ones mixed Doesn't up there. Matter. But, but one end of the scale or the other. The truth is the vast majority of us lie somewhere between a two and a five, right. not a one and a it's six. A b- big right? bell curve. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so now people are realizing, well, maybe I can express my same-sex behavior without saying I'm a gay person. Right. And so it's freeing in some ways to not have to identify and it's much easier even now for men to do that, which has never been the case. You know, yeah. it's always been a little bit more flexible and fluid for women, of course, to have a little bit more Because men want two female behaviors. partners. <laughs> well, and you know, you could sort of make out with a woman in a bar and not necessarily be gay. But for men to have sex with men and not be gay is a, is a new thing. Yeah. It's a new yeah. freedom for men. As psychologists, when we look at studies on these populations, for instance, uh, HIV rates, etc., we never refer to them as gay or straight men. It is men who have sex with men or women who have sex with women. Mm. Yeah, so the science has been a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. So, Wendy, what do you want to tell our listeners about um, dating, mating, and sex? First and foremost, it's absolutely okay to be you. Mm, Whoever you are, be you. Secondly, do the work to find out what early life messaging helped create you that may be creating some cognitive dissonance, some confusion in you right now. Can you give me like an example? Think about religious messages. Oh, good. Think about messages from your parents that might not have been sex positive. 
Think about society that says you must live in a box with a heterosexual person and offspring have to. You know what? If you're single, if you're married, if you're living with somebody, if the other adults who are helping you raise your children don't have a piece of paper or you're not even having sex with them, but they're helpful, it's all normal and it's all okay. Mm. So, you know, my big advice is for everybody to take the time to explore who they may be biologically, naturally, and who they've become because of messages that were given to them. And if somebody was raised in a strict religious household and feels very comfortable with all those rules, then go for it. There's safety and great. You know, you're going to have your heterosexual family that, that conforms with your neighborhood and your church and more power to you. I, I don't think there's any one right way to be a human. Mm. But I do think that we carry around a lot of guilt and shame that we don't need to. You know, that's a great segue into this question that I have from one of our listeners. Okay. One of our sexy listeners says, Hi, I'm Brad, and I come from a conservative family, and I do want kids and security, but I also want my sexual freedom. Can I have both? (laughs) The old, can I have my cake and eat it too? We hear you, dude. I can totally relate. That doesn't doesn't just happen when you're young. I mean, that's the whole freedom and security, you know, bond. Yeah. I will say it's challenging, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's one couple I interviewed for Mating Matters in my polyamory episode, and they have outside extracurricular activities, each of them, and they cheer each other on because of it. But remember I said no sex is standalone sex. There's stuff going on, and how can you be sure that that partner on the outside isn't having feelings for you or won't turn into your husband's stalker? I mean, you really can't do a psych evaluation on every partner. And then the other thing they did is become friends with their sex partners and have them at the breakfast table with the kids. And I'll tell you this, children are sponges. They know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, they know what's going well, on. Well, polyamorous families don't hide it from the kids either. Not when it's a love relationship, right? right. right? So when it, he's talking about his sexual freedom, not mm-hmm. necessarily expressing a committed, loving relationship with more than one partner. Right. So I, I, I will say it's challenging I'm not going to lie. I don't think it's the best case for kids. To have an open relationship. To have an open relationship where you've got a revolving door of parental figures. That's the worst thing for kids, and we know that. So your advice would be don't have an open relationship with a bunch of revolving partners, particularly around your kids. And I'd say wait until you've had the sexual experience that you want. You know, being a man, his fertility window is a little wider. Not much, though. The new research on male infertility and low sperm counts and relation to autism. Men over 40 have a much higher rate of giving birth to a child with autism. Finally, science is looking away from always blaming women and our eggs. And now we're seeing the sperm difficulties. (laughs) Your sperm gets old, too. (laughs) Your sperm gets old, too. And so, you know, he can wait until he's into his 30s and have that sexual experience. Although I do want to remind people that... We can train our bodies for anything. A sumo wrestler looks very different than a marathon runner because they train their body in a different way. And the only way to train for monogamy is either to abstain or be monogamous. Mm. You can't like flip a switch and go, well, I've been used to a smorgasbord, but now I'm going to commit to one person. It's going to be easy. Mm. It'll be difficult. Mm. And it's a choice. It's a choice you make every day. It's it's mind over body. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, I talk about 
other primates that we're related to and our primate history, but we took over the planet because of our supreme brains and our consciousness and our ability to make decisions above the animal urges of our bodies. And, you know, all mammals are really sexual, but we have the capacity to eroticize sex because we fantasize. And so there is a difference. And so you're talking about, like, how do you... How do you control your behavior regardless of your fantasies? And how do you keep your monogamy alive if that's what, you, that's what you're choosing? Well, we, there's lots of data on the, the lucky super attachers, Ooh. people who have very long monogamous relationships. And what we have discovered is that they tend to add a lot of novelty, not just to the bedroom, but novelty to their lives in general. They do stuff that's interesting, new. I mean, you don't have to be jumping out of airplanes and skydiving together, but anything that feels different and creates excitement makes you look at your partner in a different way. You know, I use the example is if you have a baby that's less than a year old, and they very quickly dishabituate, meaning get bored with their toys, you don't have to go out and buy new toys. You could just move those toys to a new room. And in that new context, they become novel to the baby, and the baby will start playing with the toys again, right? Because in a whole different room, they look different. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? You can move sex to a different room. You can change your attire. You can move your relationship into different environments and contexts as you do your date night or whatever. Keeping it exciting means constantly prodding your partner to do something different with you. You can live on different coasts. I find that helps. Some people do that too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So when you talk about monogamy, you know, are you talking about one partner for life or one partner at a time? Oh, excellent question. So in our hunter-gatherer past, of course, monogamy did exist and even some lifelong monogamy, but life expectancy was about 35 or 40, right? So this idea of having monogamous relationships that were 50, 60, 70 years long is sort of insane. For the most part, humans practice serial monogamy mm-hmm. and they stayed together long enough to get the kids up and out of the nest. Right. And this 50% divorce rate, the, the statistic you hear bantered about is actually a crazy statistic because it says it actually is based on the number of years you've been married. So if you've been married five years, you actually have a 75% chance of staying together for life. If you've been married 10 years, it goes down to about 65. And it's only at 20 years, surprise, surprise, empty nest when that number hits Mm. 50-50 because you're repurposing your relationship. Yeah, that's fascinating. And And that really goes to my sort of clinical experience that people come in for therapy, for couples therapy at like 10 years and again at 20 years. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. When they said they have to, you have to constantly be redesigning your relationship, almost making new contracts because both people are changing across the lifespan at all times. It's so true. It's so true. So if you can redesign your monogamy agreement, then you can recreate and reboot your relationship. You know, to go on the same rules that you made when you, when you were 20 and think they're going to, you know, apply when you're 50 is... It's disappointing for people. I do want to say one other thing, though. So in talking, I know this podcast is all about sex, but we also know that sexual behavior is highest when hormones are highest in people's 20s and 30s. And as hormones go down, people start to have less sexual behavior. And because our culture puts so much emphasis on sex as being a somehow 
marker of whether the relationship is solid or secure, I want to remind people that for many long-term monogamous relationships, the sexual relationship gives way to something that has such deep meaning and value, and that is mature companionate love. Robert Sternberg first identified this. And there are plenty of older couples who have kids and grandkids and so many reasons to stay together. And they've stopped having sex, but that doesn't mean they should quit intimacy. Meaning, talking about things that matter. And, and there might touch. be different kind of, of sex, right? Sex touch. can take different forms. Right. Yeah. Different forms, right? When you're watching TV, don't be in separate armchairs. Be on the couch snuggling, touching toes. Exactly. Uh, make sure you're still holding hands and kissing and hugging. And if you hug for at least 20 seconds, your body will release lots of dopamine. So it doesn't have to be hanging from the chandeliers, wearing a French maid's outfit, sex. Um, it can be... Just touching and feeling feelings of love. Yeah, exactly. That's some really great advice and great thing to say. So as we come to the end of our time together, Wendy, what do you want to leave people with? Do you have advice, something they can practice at home, anything that you can give them for homework? Well, a couple things going on in our culture at large. I don't know if your listeners are more younger or older. Wide range. Wide range, right? So I think it's really important that we all— Remember that we're here to reproduce and that we do hopefully want to shoot our genes into the future. And to do that, you need to get off apps and start talking to people and actually grow legitimate intimacy mm. and pay attention to get that off window. And get, yeah, and get, get off coffee. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and pay attention to that window. Uh, we do know that women are excelling right now as we've entered the information age. We have far, actually, slightly for the first time, more women in the American workforce than men. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the feminization of college campuses, you see for every two guys that graduate, there are three women. And research has shown that when women become more educated and make more money, they actually get something called the George Clooney effect. They want a mate who's even more educated and makes even more money. And those numbers of men are dwindling. So I want to counsel women to reevaluate their thinking of what is a power man, and he may be a guy who can power a stroller. Mm -hmm. And one other thing, Every time you choose to mate with a man who hoards resources in order to attract women, you're colluding with patriarchy. Mm. You're keeping the old system alive. So look at your gender roles and understand that messages were given to you. And the greatest guy might be some sweet guy from Finland who's going to wear your baby around (laughs) and have dinner for you when you get home. (laughs) So when you say hoarding resources, you mean— Who's in charge of the money? Who? Tell us more about that. Well, historically, patriarchy grew up of through one reason. And let us go back. Uh, and they've actually done this study with monkeys, where they've uh, taken modern day monkeys in their natural environment, and they have separated them and given one group access to more resources and another group less food. Right? And of course, the female monkeys went over to the ones with more food. So. Humans realized early on, too, that they, human males, if they hoarded the resources, kept the jobs for themselves and started around farming, that was the big downfall for women because she lost her village of roaming females to roam with. But then in the industrial age, it became hyper drive, right? Men said, women, you just stay home. You don't need money. We'll, we'll support you. And so they hoarded the jobs. They hoarded the capital. They hoarded the industry. They gave financial literacy. They passed it down through male lines. Uh, women were not taught about financial literacy. And 
so women's only choice for survival for them and their offspring was to hook up with a man, right? And so in today's times, the way to break the trappings of patriarchy are to reward men who are cooperative breeders, who are kind, who are caring, and who are giving. Mm. If all you're going to do is hook up with men with resources, you're keeping the old system alive. Yeah. So don't just go for the rich guy. Go for the nice guy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. There are so many great, amazing men out there who want to be good husbands and fathers. So why you're chasing after that bad boy playboy has to do with your evolutionary programming, but it's time to change. It's time to change. I love that. Let's end there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Wendy. Thank you for everything that you've shared with us today. And tell people how they can find more of you and how they can find your podcast, Mating Matters. You can go to my website. That's drwendywalsh.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. This episode was brought to you by Dame Products. To find out more, go to thetroublewithsex.com or email me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Join our mailing list, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, or send me a question. The Trouble With Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is by Flavor Lab New York City. Our L.A. studio engineer is Aaron Steinberg. This episode was mixed by Eric Stern with music by Bruce Hirschfield. Bye.